This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Is social media manipulating the world? People are talking about this new scary documentary on Netflix. So Adam and I did movie night and are ready to talk it out. It's the vice in virtue. Well, hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. Coming to you from Chicago, I'm Chris. Man, you nailed it. I'm Adam. You nailed that intro. You got the argument in there. You got the faith and the technology. <laughs> I sometimes have to redo it because I forget <laughs> one of those key pieces. You've really nailed it here in season five. I feel like you've really made it happen. <laughs> We're talking about the social dilemma today. Netflix this, is the social dilemma. Did they sponsor it? I don't know, but it's it's a top 10 thing watched on Netflix like yeah. this month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody seems to be talking about it. I've had at least three friends message me and say, are you guys going to talk about this documentary on the podcast? Wow, no one has asked me that. <laughs> Apparently, I need to be more connected with my friends. So we did Netflix night, you and me. <laughs> We did. Yeah. We kind of sat down and watched it I like together. It. I feel like you didn't make popcorn or anything for me, but I got a little <laughs> couch seat. So, And you are so on this food thing. You took notes on your iPad and I pulled out my clipboard with my paper and I wrote my notes down. And that is kind of the epitome of our whole device and virtue so this podcast. Whole, this whole documentary is about the evils of social media and iPhones and everything <laughs> in between. I feel like we should roll a preview first so people can hear it if they haven't heard it. Yes, let's do that. Roll let's, the preview. All right. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident. That's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. I was the co-inventor of the Facebook like button. I was the president of Pinterest. Google. Twitter. Instagram. There were meaningful changes happening around the world because of these platforms. I think we were naive about the flip side of that coin. We get rewarded by parts, likes, thumbs up, and we conflate that with value and we conflate it with truth. A whole generation is more anxious, more depressed. I always felt like fundamentally it was a force for good. I don't know if I feel that way anymore. Facebook discovered that they were able to affect real-world behavior and emotions without ever triggering the user's awareness. They are completely clueless. Fake news spreads six times faster than true news. We're being bombarded with rumors. If everyone's entitled to their own facts, there's really no need for people to come together. In fact, there's really no need for people to interact. 
we have less control over who we are and what we really believe. If you want to control the population of your country, there has never been a tool as effective as Facebook. We built these things and we have a responsibility to change it. The intention could be, how do we make the world better? If technology creates mass chaos, loneliness, more polarization, more election hacking, more inability to focus on the real issues, we're toast. This is checkmate on humanity. Checkmate on humanity, Adam. <laughs> the social dilemma on Netflix. This was like your favorite film ever, wasn't it? <laughs> you know, it's funny because I had been hearing a little bit about it. I think the week it came out. And then my dad actually texted me on a Friday night. And he's like, have you seen this movie called The Social Dilemma? I'm like, no. He's like, you have to watch it. <laughs> it's sobering. Sobering was the word he used. Ooh, that, was my, that was my dad's I was review. reading reviews about it. They were like, terrifying, <laughs> must see. You know, yeah. it, it, it's by director Jeff Orlowski, and it features this ethicist that used to work for Google, Tristan 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 Harris yeah. Tristan Harris but like yeah it's this whole documentary about social media and phone use and it says that large digital companies are manipulating us and causing waves of social damage from global political campaigns to preteen girls that like want plastic surgery right well, two thumbs up would you give it <laughs> well so I watched it twice I ended up watching it twice once with my parents they just felt like I had to see it. So I, I watched it with them and then with you. So I, you know, one thumb up each time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's really interesting because it does like a documentary thing. You know, it does the typical interview thing where they're interviewing like a guy that was involved with Pinterest, a guy that invented the like button, another technician that invented like the infinite scroll on the phone, right? Yeah, and and a VP from Facebook who was like the VP of monetization. Like oh, he, interesting. He basically right. said he was tasked with figuring out how to make the Facebook network profitable. And so it's like very documentary-like, but it's also has this story they wove in there. They put almost like it's like an after-school special. <laughs> yeah, it feels a little <laughs> cheesy, but somehow it works okay. It's like a follows a family, and they're a right. bunch of acted family that yeah. like has a teen, some teenage kids, and they're all using their phone throughout the day. And it sort of uses the story of this family to yeah. go into some of the problems that they say are affecting us. Yeah, and it really kind of dials in on two different experiences: the one of the sort of tween preteen girl and her experience on social media and then her older brother and his sort of experience of kind of going down the rabbit hole of these various videos on social media and on YouTube and so forth. So what do you want to argue about first? How about we call them all dilemmas? Maybe we can call this first one the psychological dilemma. <laughs> So the psychological dilemma sort of starts with this story of this preteen girl and she's on, say, Instagram or something like Instagram. Yeah, they uh, sort of don't like specifically yeah, they show, don't specifically you know, you sort it, of assume, right? right, right yeah. Right. And and she's doing some selfies. She's kind of got the duck face going on. She's <laughs> trying to the lips, get the purse get lips. Just, yeah, get the right look. And she's tucking her hair behind her ears and she, she gets it just right. Adam is like describing this and he's like primping his hair while he's doing it. <laughs> And so she posts this image of herself 
And then suddenly her friends are liking it and commenting, oh, it's so beautiful. You're so pretty. This is gorgeous. I love you. And then there's one comment that says, could your ears be any bigger? Oh, yeah. And then posts an elephant emoji. And she's just like crestfallen. Right. And then the next uh, comment comes in, oh, you look beautiful. But like she's suddenly removing the hair from her behind her ears and she's covering up her ears. Right. And, and then you breaks and you go to another scene and she's like looking in the mirror and she's looking at herself really closely and there's like tears. And then they break into some pretty sobering statistics around self-harm and Mm. suicide rates, Mm -hmm. particularly for girls ages 15 to 19 is what they talk about in the documentary. But by and large, they're sort of tracking suicide rates for teens age 15 to 19 and for both males and females. Rates of suicide increased from 1975 to 1990, and then they declined from 1990 to 2007 okay and then in and then in 2007 for for women suicide rates doubled to their highest rate since they've been tracked in 1975 and for men they increased by 30 percent between 2007 and 2015 so in eight years it rose 30% for men and doubled for women so they're saying since social media has really started especially Facebook that suicide rates have gone way up for preteens and teens. Yeah. So they're definitely implying this correlation that social media came out in the mid 2000s and 2007, it was taking the world by storm and everyone was getting on social media and they're saying, Oh, isn't this an interesting coincidence? And they're suggesting it's not a coincidence. They're suggesting that there's a clear relationship between social media and mental health. Right. And so the question is, does social media cause psychological harm? Yeah. And they use that that question about the teens, but also like there was all these really strong lines, like they have learned to hack your psychology. And there was a lot of talk about this algorithm which they portrayed like, with an <laughs> they actor. Per- they portrayed like, with a person. It looked yeah. like, honestly, it looked like, okay, I know I keep on using Star Trek analogies, but like <laughs> Star Trek, the original like 1960s series with people behind these big computer panels, like and turning knobs and dials. Right, right. Who was the actor that did it? Uh, it's some guy that was honestly, I recognize from, from Mad Men. I forget his name. Oh, really? I didn't, I, I'd never seen him before. I didn't watch Mad Men. Yeah, yeah. So. But he's like pretending to be this sort of this evil social media algorithm and he's turning a dial and like, let's show more likes or psychologically let's put this post from their friend up next because I know they're more likely to click this post so it starts feeling like the battle between the the teenage mind and this programmer behind the scenes right and and really so he's he's representing three characters and they say social media has three goals okay engagement growth and advertising okay got it or ad revenue right and so he represents these three different goals that social media has to keep users engaged to grow the number of people and how much time they're spending engaged right and then to serve them advertisements while they're engaged on the platform yeah and there's three computer panels so he's being three different people all three of those things they i love the line they say in the documentary only two organizations call their customers users (laughs) illegal drugs and software (laughs) in like in this very like psychology hack thing and they're talking about photo tagging they talk about notifications for comments or replies like so-and-so's replied go check it out right you know they talk about adding quick emoji replies on social media so that all i have 
have to do is tap on Instagram like the smiley face and then it notifies that other person so they quickly come back to it. Right. And that we need these little hits. Like they are right. hacking our psychology and they literally have this point where they sort of fictionalize this visual that really struck me. This was actually the teenage boy but he looks like he's a marionette almost on strings. Yeah, like, yeah, like they're, yeah. pull, they're pressing these buttons and, and the person is being pulled. So like, I am really, really sad about the idea of suicide rates going up for teenagers, right? Right. This is obviously very serious. My and question, there is something that's happening in this moment that is clearly contributing to it. Right, right. But my we question, don't quite know what it is. Well, my question is, yeah, there's. A, I think there's some serious questions. And by the way, there's been reviews about this documentary now from like Wired Magazine and a bunch of other places that have said, hey, this documentary pushes a bunch of things that that sound a little bit hyperbolic, that they might be a little bit over the top. Sure. And I don't know if you'll like this or not, but I think <laughs> it was over the top. And one of the things is I see like that young girl, she, they just show her being manipulated. And I'm afraid for a young girl that does feel that way. I even thought of my niece, like, oh, I hope she's not on social media too early she's getting closer to that age yeah, and like she'll be yeah. influenced by these things however i'm not sure that our psychology is as hackable as they're saying and and maybe i want to separate teenagers and adults maybe i can put those in two separate categories but like is it really true we do need human interaction we do need human approval i do want my friends to like me these are things that god gave me like that are actually good i can also worship those things and be overly attached to those things. I was in junior high mm-hmm. and in high school, I, I didn't have social media to do that. I was already... <laughs> yeah, you like, didn't we need social tr- media to <laughs> amplify your insecurities, But right? maybe amplify is the right word. Maybe like this does amplify some things here. But yeah. I also think the way the social dilemma presented it is it's almost like these programmers are hacking into your brain. It's like they're feeding you these things that you absolutely cannot resist and it's over. Yeah, I think the... The notion that there is malicious activity on the part of social media companies and programmers, I think is unfounded. And I think the people that are working at Facebook and Google and Apple and Amazon are not indifferent or careless about the mental health of a large population. But I think they also are incentivized to create push notifications because those push notifications create more engagement. Right. Back to that engagement goal that they have. Like they can figure out ways to create engagement. And you heard in the preview to do it without users becoming aware that it's happening someone without the, triggering their awareness of it. Yeah. Someone in the documentary called it a digital pacifier. Did you remember that part? Yeah. A digital vaguely. pacifier is atrophying our own ability to deal with our loneliness. I, I think that's absolutely true. Now. Yeah. 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 I true confessions. Yeah. Yeah. We've been in a pandemic. We did the TikTok episode a couple months ago. I, I like went down the TikTok rabbit hole I I, and, and it's no question, no doubt. But like, as I've reflected on it, like, I was like, do I need to intervene? No, you don't need to intervene. The Lord has intervened. <laughs> but like, as I've reflected on it, I've recognized it is pacifying a need and a desire for connection that isn't happening during the pandemic. I think in other times of life, other circumstances, I wouldn't have gone down the TikTok rabbit hole as much as I have. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think you're right, though. It can serve as a digital pacifier without our recognizing it all the time. 
And it's valuable to ask, what need is this social media, this technology sort of satisfying or pacifying for me? I think it's personal and I feel it a little bit too. Maybe not quite the same. I mean, <laughs> some guy on the documentary said my favorite quote of the whole thing said, you check your smartphone before you pee in the morning <laughs> or while you pee in the morning because those are the only two choices, <laughs> right? And like just talking about this addiction and we do pick up our phone first things. Yeah. You know, I don't though right now. For instance, my phone stays on my charger when I get up in the morning and I have a habit of, and I have notifications set off my iPhone till 9 a.m. Oh, that's so, great. So I don't see it. It's on do not disturb. Yeah. I get up, I take a shower, I make my coffee, I read scripture, and then I read some news, and then I reflect on some things. Sometimes I do some journaling or some writing, and then my notifications turn on, and that's been my habit. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I had to figure that out. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, that yeah. wasn't a hard habit to start. I just had to click a few things. Yeah. And I've... I've put my charger in a different room than where I sleep. Right. So that's one thing that I do because I don't use my phone as my alarm. Right. I have turned off all my notifications. I've actually now with TikTok, I've implemented a time limit. So it'll sh- it right. shuts off after 45 min- minutes uh, <laughs> per day. <laughs> good, good for you, buddy. <laughs> but so Facebook actually responded to the social dilemma. They put out a response. So oh, yeah. the social right. dilemma clearly right. has gained so their many awareness. millions of views that Facebook has had not had respond. And, yeah. yeah. And so one thing they did say was in regards to the engagement and the growth goals that they have, they said in 2018, they made changes to their algorithm to quote, prioritize meaningful social interactions. Right. However you might define that. However, right. their algorithm right. is able to articulate that. Right. We don't know, but they said that led to 50 million less hours on Facebook per day yeah right and they 50 million now that sounds like a lot but if you think about two billion users (laughs) two and a half billion users it's a pittance but still they said why would we do that if we didn't actually care about right i think that the crux of this with the mental health and why we go back to things it's not just the notifications that push you over and over we've talked about this before it's because they're from people we care about Right? Yes. And this is the ethical... They can be from people we care about. That's not always the case. Okay. Yeah, it's true. But I don't really care if a stranger does something sometimes nearly, nearly as much. But like news notifications I'm thinking about too. Like, okay. Okay. Yeah. But I'm talking about social media. Yeah. Fair. I, I guess like when we sort out these ethical things, you have something like the social dilemma calling all these things crazy and manipulative. And they're saying they're using your psychology against you. I think there's a careful web to untangle the true human need and the bad there. And we got to be careful about just calling something an idol. It's like, it's the analogy of food, right? Food can become damaging to us. Right. When we misuse it, we can overeat. We can, we have to make choices, ethical choices about how we eat and how much we eat, but we need the food and it's actually a good and it can be beautiful and we need the social interactions and they can be good and they can be beautiful. And at the same time, there can be damaging things. I don't love the narratives that just sort of go, this whole thing is a mess that we just have to throw the whole thing out. Yeah, I appreciate what you're saying around food because I think, and this is a soapbox I have, the notion that we call social media or our smartphones addictions, mm-hmm. we, we frame it in terms of addiction. We frame it in terms of this drug, right? Mm-hmm. And narcotics are never good. And yet food can be good it can also be bad and i think we need to be thinking about social media in terms of nutrition not addiction
This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. Chris, you called this segment the disinformation dilemma. What do you mean by that? Yeah, the question on like whether the social media can manipulate politics, can manipulate countries, can create... <laughs> I mean, we've heard things about white supremacy yeah. and conspiracy theories, and they talk a lot about disinformation. And the story with the after-school special kids <laughs> was that like the one kid starts watching these videos online of a guy going, only we know the truth. The government's not doing this right. And this kid who's like an older teenager, I don't know, like maybe 16 or 18 or something in the thing, keeps on getting sucked into these videos in this fictional story. Uh-huh. And he's watching more and more and then he eventually winds up at this rally that we don't really see where it is, but it feels it's like it's the extreme a, center if, is what they're called. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. They come up with this fake thing called the extreme center, which is sort of clever because they didn't uh, want to make anyone mad. Yeah, I guess. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it was very extreme and like they don't believe anything. So it follows this kid down this path and the question is like, man, social media maybe just can make this happen. It can radicalize people yeah, yeah. or can create whole countries to get thrown off or even elections to be thrown off. Yeah, basically did did social media create 2020? That's the question it's Oof, asking. Right? Oh, man. I know we've done this topic some, but yeah, what do you... Yeah. So the second time I watched this, it occurred to me that this documentary in large part is telling the story of a business model. And they're talking about okay. the growth, the engagement, the advertising, and the way that the advertising is then segmenting markets and groups of people by their interests and their behaviors yep. and their activities. Sure. And based on those, then they're getting marketed to. I was in marketing for six years, so I've seen how you can segment markets on Facebook to find people who love Oprah and wow. market to more people who like Oprah for whatever whatever uh-huh. product it is, right? <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah, so you can. <laughs> Apparently, I like Oprah because I looked on my Facebook advertising <laughs> and true. I'm categorized as someone who likes the Oprah Winfrey Network, OWN. I don't know if I've ever watched that. The only time I can remember is an interview she did with like one of the Hillsong pastors or something. That's that we're so <laughs> I don't know. Afield. You wear the hipster clothes. I don't it is maybe you feel like you fit. But the point is the question here is with this business model, this ability to segment the market so clearly that now not just companies are doing targeted marketing through Facebook, bad actors are taking and leveraging that tool. They're weaponizing this marketing tool that Facebook has and they're taking false or poorly framed different ideas and pitching them out to a large group of people that are likely to get on board with that idea and spread that idea, that misinformation. Yeah. And so you have the, in the documentary, they followed some real conspiracies like Pizzagate was one where you had some far right 
folks believing that Hillary Clinton had a sex trafficking ring and she was operating out of a basement of a business in D.C. Yeah, that was it's a pizza kinda, chain. And, it's you know, kind of bent into this QAnon thing as well. Yeah, or like like chemtrails. <laughs> Do you even know what that is? I, had, I, I don't know what chemtrails is. I had to ask what a friend, it? actually. It's like, I think it's like people that believe that airplanes, <laughs> when they're going overhead and uh-huh. there's a white streak behind them, they're actually sprinkling chemical dust on all of us or something. <laughs> That's <laughs> oh, right, but just certain things that are just far beyond the pale. It doesn't matter political left or right, but are just not true. They're just. <laughs> <laughs> but but there there are these stories out there from these quote unquote news sources, these websites, sure. and they're getting advertised on Facebook. Sure. And clicked on and, and passed around. So the question is, can social media do this? I am skeptical. And I have, uh, I have multiple reasons why. Of, skeptical of what? I do think social media can c- connect radical groups with people with radical interests across a wider geographical area. And I will agree that maybe it's easier to find someone with similar belief structures as you on right. social social media. In Pinterest, I can suddenly find everyone that's really into like light green cross stitch of whales. <laughs> like they might be able to find a group together, right? Like this is one of the things about online. Yeah, you find this niche, right? Yeah, I didn't have someone that liked the exact thing I liked, but now online I can find a yeah. hundred other people that like that very specific thing. And that's like men who like My Little Pony. Okay, they're called it's, bronies. <laughs> That's a thing, but yeah, like I, it, before it didn't exist, but now they have a support group for one another. Do you want to talk? N- nope, that's it. Because <laughs> you can buy little brushes for their hair. Do you know that? <laughs> I don't know why you know that, but. <laughs> but. But like, so I do think maybe you can unite with someone that you couldn't otherwise. So social media or the internet in general is allowing for that. Yeah. But a lot of people have pointed out the internet in general is that thing. Like there are message boards that are not social media, that are not Facebook. They're like 4chan, 8chan. I don't know if you've heard of some of these. Yeah, these kind of like Reddit. Um, Gab that don't do push notifications are not doing ads, but uh, even some mm-hmm. white supremacy groups, they sort of hide in these areas. They're sort of backroom things and that's where people are talking. So the internet itself, communications technology in general is allowing for that, but it's not at all obvious that it's only Facebook say that's doing that. It is not necessarily social media. It's just the online communications. But Facebook or social media's business model that has made segmentation so clearly possible. And to your point, like 4chan or 8chan has found a segment of the population that wants to be on that platform that has what you call belief structures that are Mm -hmm. bent in certain ways. Those are finding groups of people that are bronies and all think the same thing and want to be together and talk about that. Like, I'm sorry, I can't, I'm sorry, come up with bronies. (laughs) (laughs) But like, you're saying, okay, it wasn't social media. It's just the internet that created this. I'm just saying that it's not always, there was also this theme through the social dilemma that, you know, Facebook, for instance, is Mark Zuckerberg is controlling this whole thing. You know, there's this one, there's the, and that contributes to this whole idea of like, one person has a lot of power over these political things or these countries. Like there was one quote, never before in history have 30 designers made an impact on 2 billion people, Mm. 2 billion people who have thoughts that they didn't intend because the designers said they should. And I go, okay, we, you and I love to think about environmental technologies. Think about how technologies do have subtle impacts on whole societies. However, I think those impacts are really diffuse and cultural about, and they move slowly about, the what's normal or what's not you're saying it's slow and widespread and hard to track 
and their big ideas, like cultural ideas, like most people will go to college and then people start thinking, oh, most people go to college, but maybe that wasn't true 50 years ago. It's a slow idea. But Pizzagate's a fast idea. Yeah, these fast ideas, these political ideas, what's really funny is the social dilemma starts presenting this view of a very small digital elite that are making decisions about how everyone thinks on the right. other end, okay. which is literally what most conspiracy theories think. Literally, yeah. <laughs> that's how the structure of a lot of conspiracy theories that there's a few elite people like the Clintons are doing something yeah, or the yeah, yeah. or there's stories about the big political operative that will have all this money and power in his exercising their power through all these other people when everyone's just thinking like they are. Yeah. And what was ironic is the social dilemma was sort of saying this conspiracy theory thing that there are like 30 people in a room deciding what all these countries think. And I find that hard reach. Okay. And Facebook in their response to this social dilemma, they called it a conspiracy documentary. Oh, which yeah, I right. thought was, they went after that. They did go after that. I, I agree. It's not that 30 people in a room are deciding what people think, but they might be deciding when people think about something. So that push notification. Okay. So Tristan Harris was on the Gmail team and this is where he started thinking about yeah. it because they had all these push notifications about Gmail notifying its users in certain ways. And at scale, when you have a billion users or whatever, that's that scale. When you push something out to a million users, you have alerted a million users in a moment and you've alerted them to think about this thing now. And, and it's not necessarily what they're thinking, but it's changing when they're thinking about it and what they're paying attention to and what they were paying attention to just before that notification. Yeah. I th and that's, that's where he kind of comes in. But I hear what you're saying, yeah. that it's not necessarily determining what people are thinking. And so the question to me then is like, why are these conspiracy theories gaining so much traction right now? Are they more now? Yeah, maybe they are. Maybe they are. But so, so you had this other quote. Tristan said, an MIT study is showing that fake news spreads six times faster than true news. And so I, I don't know about the study. I didn't get to read that. My question is, and this is the last hit back on this, though, is the fake news might be spreading quickly. But I go reading that fake news, some of the stuff. I read the stuff about Pizzagate and mm -hmm. I read some stuff about chemtrails. Right. How many people are believing that news? And the spread of that news is literally not the identical thing as believing that news. In fact, this is media reception theory. This is communication theory that people have studied for a long time. Just because you're shown something doesn't mean you believe it. In fact, right. standard media theory talks about a non-critical reception and then what's called a negotiated reception. Like I believe some things about this, but I don't believe other things okay. about this. Okay. And then a rejection. I reject this. I see it. I'm reading it because I want to be informed or I got pushed that, but I go, <laughs> no way. Right. We do this all the time. In fact, we do that quite a lot. We see messages, billboards, or news items that we go, well, that's not really right. And we do a rejectionist thing. My point is just because fake news spreads, it doesn't mean a ton of people are believing that fake news. And it's an overemphasized view of media reception that sort of believes spread is the same thing as influence. So why do people share it? Are they sharing it because they're ridiculing it? I don't share things that I... No, they're sharing it because the chemtrails are making them do it. I understand that. <laughs> that clearly makes sense. 
People are going to be looking up chemtrails now, <laughs> and I feel that's terrible because we should not be propagating <laughs> really, really weird things. So the point is, there's a there's a correlation between sharing and believing. What is the relationship between those two? If I share it, okay. does it mean I believe it? Sure. If something goes viral, is that because I believe it or want to spread it mm-hmm. for some reason? I'm trying to think about my own experience and why I share something. It is generally because it represents a view I have. Sometimes it's because I want to refute that view. And so things can go viral because people troll it. Mm -hmm. And then a bunch of people jump on the bandwagon Mm -hmm. and say, look at this fool over here saying this thing. Let's criticize him. But it ends up going viral. So your your critics (laughs) actually end up amplifying your message. Right, right. So I get the media reception theory aspect of it, but what's the relationship between sharing and belief? Well, yeah, I would think a lot of people sharing it are sort of agreeing with it or believing it. I don't know if they're acting on it. I don't know. It's just that the social dilemma said stuff like, as a tool of persuasion, it may be the greatest thing ever created. And I think it's important. I think at scale, that's true. Yeah. At, right. at the individual level, that's not necessarily true. Even, and I know this is controversial, but even talking about meddling in U.S. elections, which we've done in another episode, some of yeah. this, but we could do more on. I believe a lot of this happened. It seems very true. The reports are Russia and yeah. China. Cambridge both have done, bought a bunch of ads, or even what they do, will create fake accounts, and then it, these accounts comment on things and look like they're a person talking, but they're sort of not, or they're a person pretending to be something else. Right. And that was sort of maybe like provide social proof. You're like, oh, that person sort of doesn't like that or thinks it's bad. Maybe I should too. So I think that does happen. We've seen in some of these smaller countries, governments maybe getting hundreds of accounts and trying to comment on things to sort of manipulate the public opinion. Yeah. It's got to work for some. I guess I'm still skeptical that everyone is that manipulatable. <laughs> Uh, Again, I I don't think it's that any one person is that manipulable, but that when you're able to spread it through small niche groups that are akin Mm -hmm. to one another, Mm -hmm. it is amplifying. Conspiracy theories have existed forever, but now they're getting online, they're getting viral, they're getting amplified in new ways that we're having to deal with. So like, was JFK killed by, what's his name? (laughs) You know, there's whole conspiracy theories around that. And yet, you know, now we're in a different media age where that spreads a lot faster to people who are likely to be interested in it. It, For me, the conspiracy theory thing is all about suspicion, right? At at the heart of it is this question, is this suspicion. It's a lack of faith, actually. And trust. Yeah, trust. Right. Suspicion is lack of trust. Right. It's It's a lack of trust. And I think about it as a lack of trust in the government is one side. But it's also become a lack of trust in the media and Mm. social media is maybe implicated in that a little bit. But in my own growing up, there was suspicion about the liberal media. Sure. Growing up in the evangelical world, I did. Sure, sure. And I think it's really interesting because that suspicion that happens both of the government but also the news media we now are looking for, well, who do I trust then? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if we have these suspicions about people in power, here's why I think that suspicion is there. It's because as evangelicals, evangelicals don't see themselves represented in the media. Sure. And I'm just going to talk about evangelicals because that's the group I came from. And I think this is changing, but I think there are lots of people who don't see themselves represented 
And so they say, I'm not represented there. Therefore, they're not reflecting reality because I'm not represented by the liberal media, quote unquote, or the government doesn't represent me because I'm not seeing myself reflected there. And to be honest, people on the margins have long mm-hmm. experienced that mm-hmm. and they have to develop their own communities in order to sustain their cultures. And I think there are white cultures as well that are suspicious of both the government and the media because they don't see themselves represented in it. And I think, honestly, that's a lot of what Trump tapped into in 2016. But my point is, without that sort of sense of representation, people become suspicious of the powers that be, and they look for reasons that they're not being represented. And those conspiracies come out of that in part. Yeah, I guess at the end of the day, trust and suspicion are sort of the right categories. And maybe we need to ask ourselves, what are we trusting? And how are we coming to that decision? And then the question, of course, is, can we trust this documentary? (laughs) Adam, the biggest thing that stood out to me when we were watching The Social Dilemma was what I'm going to call the never-before-in-history dilemma. (laughs) Okay. But it was this point that there was one point where Tristan's on a panel, I think, with some professors and another professor is literally arguing and saying words that you hear me say a lot on this podcast. Yep. Uh, he's talking about the, sound like you. He's talking about the printing press or the telegraph in these other communications technologies in history. And the professor was saying, well, there have been these shifts in communications in history yep. and humans have worked through these. And Tristan was saying, no. This is completely different. This is completely new. We will not adapt to this. This is the big thing. And he has this crazy quote, right? He says, we wonder when technology will overwhelm human strength, but there is a much earlier point where it overwhelms human weakness. Checkmate humanity. (laughs) Right? Like he says, this is the biggest deal ever. Is this unprecedented? Yeah. Is social media an unprecedented moment in human history? We're living through the end times, Adam. (laughs) Oh, no. I think we both grew up with uh, that kind of (laughs) Sunday school class. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, he's sort of saying from a, not a Christian perspective, a secular perspective, this is the end times of communications media. We've created AIs and algorithms that hack our psychology, that are giving us different information. They're killing our mental health. They're killing our democracies and governmental health. And this is ending everything. (laughs) And I think he's wrong. I really do. I do think it's an unprecedented time, just as the printing press was massively unprecedented to Western Europe, you know, and humans have always had these liminal spaces, these transitional times where they actually quite struggle with a communications technology upheaval. Right. And so we see those struggles. We see revolutions sometimes come out of communications technologies, meaning like coups, like the French revolution. I mean, big things. Yeah. I'm not saying that there aren't big impacts. What I'm saying is what we've seen is that humans and societies actually adapt more than we think. And we are in a time right now where we have boomers and even you and me, which are not boomers, <laughs> did not grow up with this social media space. Yeah. Our equilibrium is thrown off. We're yeah. trying to decide where we trust. We're deciding what we think about ourselves. But I I'm not positive our kids are in for drowning. I actually think they'll float. Hmm. Pretty good argument, huh? Yeah, when I think about the 
global body, I think about social media as sort of this, this big, I don't even know what you would call it. (laughs) So I think about, I think about society as this digestion system that has a certain metabolism that metabolizes the food and social media is this huge feast of a meal or what, however you want to describe it. <laughs> this analogy is getting better and better. Let's and, go. and so, and society has to learn to digest it and to develop a metabolism that can integrate it into society. Right. And the scale of social media never before in history has a company had 2 billion people that it can reach out to immediately. Okay. Never before. It is unprecedented. I, it's fair. I will say that most social media doesn't have 2 billion people reaching out to you or anyone. You see about 100 people. Agreed. So there's this this false equality between the size of the total media sometimes. It's almost saying like, how many people read books in the world? Right, but the, the connection that those 2 billion people have to one another is also unprecedented. When have I ever had the ability to alert 500 of my friends about X, Y, and Z in my life? Like, Again, you totally, you sort of can't, unless you pay for an ad, I guess. Right. You but, sort of I mean, can't. It's controlled. I mean, you, you, can, you post it on there and like 30 people see it. My point is, though, that there is a communication environment among 2 billion people that has never existed before. Yeah, yeah. Like, like in a way that has never existed before. And, and figuring out how to digest that as a global society takes time. And mm-hmm. I would agree we've had other unprecedented moments in history, printing press, the telegraph, the television, what have you. And those have reshaped, reconfigured. We've had to digest and metabolize those Mm -hmm. different communications media, but it's at a new scale that we have to figure out how to do. And I think this documentary is actually an effort to help digest and metabolize what's happening. Okay, yeah. Even though they're critical of it, they're also illuminating for a lot of people. I mean, my parents, these were new thoughts to them. The idea that you are the product is a new thought to a lot of people. Well, and famously, of course, that senator that asked Mark Zuckerberg last year, like, how do you make money? And he's like, we sell ads. We sell advertising, (laughs) Senator. Or the the fact that Google does different search results based on who you are. The documentary presented those things as like these crazy novel things. And I feel like for you and me, those don't feel very novel. Right. But but I mean, we've been in marketing for five or 10 of the past years. So like, we're familiar with how people get segmented and how they get Personalization, both helps the user get things more relevant to them, but it's also that's where yeah. ad data is coming from and how they figure out how to serve those. And so the documentary, I think, is actually doing a great service, even though it might be spooking people, it's doing a great service in educating them about some of the dynamics that are relevant in the social media world, and it's helping us to digest those personally so that we can digest them globally really good so i guess the question digestion who knew so i guess the question is how do we digest a solution to this whole thing is there one okay adam 
since you think there's a huge dilemma here, now we're up to our final area, which is the solution dilemma. <laughs> is there a way out of this? If this is such a huge problem, how do we get out? The director of the documentary sort of had this whole thing like, okay, well, share this documentary around with everybody uh-huh, uh-huh. and then reboot your use and rebuild the system. What do you think? Can you we actually back out of this yeah. social dilemma? Yeah. Well, clearly I'm not the only one who has this dilemma because Netflix made a documentary and it's been top 10. So other people experience this <laughs> dilemma too. Yeah. Yeah. Two of the things that they talk about as potential solutions in the documentary, they talk about really regulation and legislation. So they're saying big problems like the social dilemma require big solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They require social solutions and the social engine that can take Facebook on is the government. Okay. And so to respond to Facebook, we need governmental solutions. And we've probably talked about this in the past, but legislation always lags behind the technology innovation, which is fine. That's okay. But they're saying, yeah, legislation needs to happen. And so two things they suggest in the documentary, one is attacks on data processing Oh, I like that actually. Yeah. Sort of interesting. Yeah. So the more data that an organization, a company processes and pulls from their users, the more they have to pay for that. Sort of like a, like a water bill of yeah. like tracking how many gallons of water you're right. doing out of your tap and then you get pay for that at the yeah. end of the month. How right? many exabytes yeah. of data <laughs> Facebook is processing every month, they'd have to pay a certain amount, which I'm with you. I kind of like that. The other one that they talk about is banning certain markets. So Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote the book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's like a 700 page book. She's a Harvard professor. And I think a lot of what she was writing was kind of undergirding a lot of this Mm -hmm. documentary. So she talked about banning certain markets. So she said, you know, we've decided that human organs shouldn't be sold. (laughs) We shouldn't incentivize people to harvest other people's organs and sell them. Right, right, right. And so that's just an ethical thing, right? And So she's saying like you can ban a market. We have decided certain markets are not good. Just because we're in America and we like free markets, it doesn't mean we don't want all markets. Yeah. And so she's saying, what if we ban something here? Yeah, so she's saying human attention is maybe something that shouldn't be extracted from people and Mm. used for profit. Hmm. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. Is our attention valuable? What is the value of our attention? And does it have a certain kind of dignity that deserves to be regulated? Do we deserve to have control over our own attention the way we have control over our own organs, (laughs) right? I mean, attention, and this links to the idea of presence that you and I talk about a lot tension and presence being linked. Mm. I just don't know how... How do you measure it? How do you regulate it? Yeah, because I mean, in practical things, it's things like notifications and things. And we have choices about attention. And this gets a little bit to the individual sort of response, like the... Yeah, yeah. uh, the documentary, you know, guys like, well, okay, reboot your own use and then rebuild the system. So you're talking about some of the systemic responses. Right. So there's some Christian theology here too, right? This is where the ethics and maybe the things come in about the individual. It's funny because you often talk about individual practices. Right. Here you're talking about the system. I was thinking about individual <laughs> practices on this one more. And one of the things that got me was an old virtue. And there are the list of the cardinal virtues that are out there. 
And one of them is temperance. Temperance, like uh, like not drinking alcohol. <laughs> like the temperance movement, right? The temperance long, movement. long skirts and no whiskey. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The no, like the temperance in terms of a patience or tempering our desire. Okay. In Theologian Stanley Harawas, who's one of my favorites, writes about this, and I was reading about this this week, this idea that temperance is a set of practices or habits that we put into our life that shapes what we want. He says, as we get older, one of the hardest questions in our life is, what do you want? (laughs) I sort of relate to that. Yeah. And he said, our desires sort of push us around a lot, and a lot of times we just go through our day. We get up, we do our morning thing, we go to work, we answer questions calls from family, we go to the store, we do the things we have to do. Temperance is sort of that virtue of sort of saying not everything around us has to shape us Mm. in the same way that we can make choices or habits about how they're shaping us. I'm not talking about blowing off your habit, the life and the work and family. I'm talking about taking a notice of what is happening around you and then making choices that build in these environmental habits. Okay. The reason why I thought of this is because a lot of the social dilemma talked about how notifications become this thing where we're just habituated to go to. Absolutely. On the social dilemma website, (laughs) there is a little red bell with the number one red notification icon Uh right on the website. Yeah. And I without thinking about it, I pulled up this website and I instantly clicked it because it just looked like an app notification. Like, oh. And it pops up and it has a little note that says, We know you would click this. (laughs) Because they're like, this is this is them hacking your psychology. And I realized I did it. I fell for it. (laughs) But what temperance invites us to is that the Holy Spirit can change who we are by us incorporating certain habits of faithfulness. And I don't always have to respond. Once I notice that habit of responding to the notification, yep. I could actually not do that. Sort yep. of like I was talking in the morning about how I just turned off the way notifications hit me in the morning. Right. And that was a decision. Mm-hmm. But now it changed a habit and now it's not hard. Right. I had the same experience with TikTok. Once I noticed that it was serving me in certain ways, it was meeting certain needs or trying to meet certain needs, but failing to do so, I decided to change that habit in a way that was more in line with my values. Which I think is really awesome. And I know I've been a critic of (laughs) how much can we do like in these big environments, you know, the ocean is sweeping us out to sea. (laughs) I like to think about it. But some of the individual habits can change, especially on this attention stuff. Mm. I don't Mm. think we are required, even if Facebook like ratchets it up, I don't believe that this hacking your psychology thing is fully manipulating the way the documentary showed with strings attached to a person. (laughs) I believe if we don't pay attention, we can, but we can Mm -hmm. pay attention and then choose another temperate habit. Yeah, you, you mentioned faithfulness and the art of paying attention and inviting the Holy Spirit in. You know, to me, all of that sounds like prayer, <laughs> right? Right. And what would it mean to bring the Holy Spirit into my social media experience? What would it mean to be aware of the Holy Spirit as I'm scrolling? What would that look like? What would it look like to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit about, should I click on that? Or, man, that post made me super envious. I'm still thinking about it how can I pray about it? Or that made me really angry or I wanted to respond, whatever the case is. But with these notifications, it's the same thing. We're we're prompted to respond. But the question is, can we choose to 
pray before we respond. Or, or maybe pray in the same vein. For instance, on my home screen on my iPad, and mm-hmm. I actually use my iPad every morning. That's what I use. Okay. I have my news app. I use Flipboard. And then Facebook is actually right on the home screen too. And a lot of times I'm going to want to open that. But right <laughs> next to that, my third icon is actually the Book of Common Prayer, which is the Anglican prayer book. But, you know, the Anglicans have the lectionary. It's like the one-year Bible kind of thing, the readings for the day. And so you read through the Bible. And so... Often when I open it, I've been habituated to open my iPad, click on the thing. But even if I don't want to, I tap on the Bible, suddenly Mm. it opens up and suddenly I'm reading scripture. It's almost like scrolling through a newsfeed. At first, that's not what I thought I was going to do. I just habituated to opening it. And now I'm reading it and now I'm absorbed in it. I think that's using the same habits to reframe my morning. I think the balance is that we've got to do both of those things, right? The You talked about the system response, and right. I'm talking about the individual response, the building of virtue. It seems like the actual solution to the dilemma is actually both sometimes the system and the individual. And that just the individual is sort of a drop in the ocean. It's not going to change yeah. the system. But just changing the system could ignore the idea that there's individual results or even responsibility. Yeah, individual responsibility, collective action, both need to be a part of it. Okay, Chris, enough of that. It's time for vice or virtue. Crocheting. <laughs> crocheting, you know, you like crocheting like, light green whales. Are you saying when I was talking about not conspiracy theorists, but just how people <laughs> with like interests get together? What if we like that? Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't actually know what crocheting is. <laughs> I mean, sort of. It's kind of like knitting. I think. Isn't that way that's different, right? Knitting has straight needles and crocheting has like a hooked needle. Oh my gosh. How do you know something. this? It, you might just have one or maybe you have two needles, but then you're like. You, you end up with a scarf is basically, or, or a light green whale. <laughs> I, I do guess. have a friend that does a lot of this, although to be honest, I don't know if it's crocheting or knitting, but she made a crochet or a knitted jackalope the other day that looked pretty cool. <laughs> she crocheted a jackalope? Yeah, like a bunny with antelopes on its head. <laughs> pretty intense. I'm going to say it's a virtue. Okay. And for two reasons. Uh, one, there is a hook, apparently, as you're telling me, <laughs> which is what social media has, uh, is hooks into us yeah, yeah, and true. gets us to it's love our friends. hooks in you. <laughs> <laughs> and what? Uh, and gets us to love our friends. But I, what I really want to say, it's a virtue if there could be a documentary about crocheting. Oh, there absolutely is a crocheting <laughs> documentary. Because I, I really thought you were going to say our vice of virtue is just going to be documentaries <laughs> and we could talk about that, which, you know, that's a really uh, mixed bag. But speaking of a bag of crochet, that's what I'm going with. Oh, man. So the first... First time I heard about a jackalope, I was at Mackinac Island. Okay, well. And I saw a postcard that had a bunny wearing the deer antlers and the... <laughs> You're the, not even going to answer the question. The, the uh-huh. postcard was purporting that this was like a real thing. And I was like 10 and I bought it. Like I bought... 10 I, years old? Yeah. And I believed that like jackalope were a thing that I had never heard of. See, this is what social media is doing to 10 year olds. I know, right? (laughs) They believe that jackalopes are real. (laughs) And so I also think that they are a virtue. 
for that reason. <laughs> Crocheting or jackalopes, but great. yes. <laughs> well, go watch the social dilemma and yes. hopefully folks will watch it and tell us what they think. Yes. Share your thoughts with us on Twitter at device virtue or at any of those social media apps that Instagram, are destroying our lives. Facebook. We're on all of we're them. We're on though. We're bringing virtue <laughs> to the devices. I hope so. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.